Welcome to Security All In. This is Sam Curry. This show is about how we as individuals, professionals, and in our personal lives all at some point went all in on security, how we decided that this was the industry for us or how it decided it was right for us, and our stories in how we get here and what we do every day. I'm joined today by Eddie Schwartz, um, a longtime friend and associate. Uh, Eddie, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Sam. It's great to be with you. Yeah, and uh, I, I have to say, um, we were talking a little bit before the show, it's been a few years since we last spoke, but I had the pleasure of working with you for a couple of years when we were both at RSA. And and since then, uh, I've, of course, gone on to Cyber Reason and uh, doing a bunch of stuff in the industry here in the U.S., but I understand you're now overseas, right? That's right. I'm living at, in Abu Dhabi and uh, working for a company called Dark Matter. How is it as a first as an American expat uh, living in the Middle East, if that's the right label for it? And and secondly, um, what's it like at Dark Matter every day? Well, uh, first of all, it's really cool living over here. I, I guess we kind of think of it as the Gulf, you know, um, GCC is uh, sort of what everybody says over here. And I mean, expat's kind of the thing. Uh, you know, if you think about us or Saudi Arabia, um, most of the professional workforce is actually made up of expats. So uh, in my company alone, um, you know, there's uh, about 60 nationalities that I work with, um, you know, everything from Americans to Brits to uh, Eastern Europeans, Russians, Chinese, South Americans, uh, Africans, you name it. And, uh, you know, it's just a great melting pot. Uh, I grew up in New York City and you know, having that melting pot is really a pleasure and the diversity of, of just about everything you can think of, you know, from gender to religion to ethnic background just makes it really, really fascinating. Probably the only thing we all have in common, or well, two things, one is cybersecurity and the other is we all speak English. <laughs> as, as, a, as a lingua franca, even though that technically I think means French, but um, um, what, what does GCC stand for? I'm guessing something like Gulf Cyber Community or am I way off? <laughs> No, so uh, I think it's actually Gulf Cooperation Council or something. So it's you know, similar to uh, you know like what you see uh, you know like the Organization of American States or these types of things. So it's you know made up of uh, some of the states in the region that have agreed to cooperate economically or politically in some way. And I have to ask, seeing as you said you're from New York, do you miss the Yankees at all, or do you do you still get to follow <laughs> them while you're there? Well, I grew up when Mickey Mantle was playing, uh, you know, and then I also lived in New York during Reggie Jackson and that era. So uh, I, I like to think that I grew, grew up during, a, you know, a golden time or a couple golden times of the Yankees. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, they've had their, their ups and downs, let's put it that way. Uh, I did enjoy living in Boston for, or, you know, commuting to Boston and living in Boston for a little while when I was at RSA because I got to wear my, my Yankee colors and get uh, items thrown at me uh, in, in various public places. Nice. Uh, I myself became an American in New York City, and, and my wife is a diehard Yankees fan. So I live in Boston, and I'm a Yankees fan, which gets me into a bit of trouble. I think we can we can relate on that. Um, I wanted to ask about I want to ask about your background, though, a bit. Um, uh, and of course, uh, you heard in the intro the spirit of the show, and yeah, there's a bit of a poker illusion to it. There's this sense that at some point we all go all in on what it is we're doing. Um, how did you come to security? Did it come to you? At what point did you go, you know what, um, I'm in this. And, and, and if you ever did, did you, did you say, I love this? Well, um, I, uh, early in my, uh, professional life, I guess I, uh, wound up working for the government, uh, probably when I was 20 years old or so. 
And, um, you know, I was stationed overseas, actually, for a long time at U.S. embassies overseas. So I lived all over the place in South America and Poland uh, during the, the, uh, you know, the Cold War days and the and, uh, Philippines and Egypt. I lived in Egypt for three years during the first Gulf War. And in 1993, uh, when I left the government uh, for, uh, you know, because of a, a family matter, um, I was really sitting around wondering what to do. And I had met a guy uh, in the 80s uh, Lynn, named Lynn McNulty. I don't know if you, you've ever met him. Uh, he, he actually died a couple of years ago. He's in his actually. 80s. But yeah, and Lynn was one of actually the pioneers of cybersecurity. He was one of the founders of ISC Squared. He was mm-hmm. the founder of the Computer Security Resource Center at NIST. And uh, when I met Lynn in the 80s, he hadn't done any of that really. He, he was uh, running a little lab for the uh, Intel community at, down on K Street in D.C. And he he said, "Oh, cybersecurity." He didn't even say cybersecurity in those days. He said, "Information security is going to be a big deal someday. You you government people need to take an interest in this." You know. So, so your government work was not specifically electronic or cyber related at the time, right? No, not at all, not at all. And and we were all like, "Oh God, how do how do we get out of this class?" You know. And um, and you know, years later, uh, when I was thinking about something to do, a friend of mine said, "Oh, you remember that guy Lynn McNulty? He's looking for people that." Uh, actually can talk to government executives and, and, uh, you know, we're still people. looking for those, by the way, we are, we are still looking. For yeah. Those. yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. They, you know, sort of bridge the gap between, uh, technology and, and, uh, you know, and, and sort of, I guess, business talk. And so I, I, I met with Lynn and he was actually going on to NIST at the time to found the, mm. the CSRC. The, which is now famous for all the 800 series publications. And, and so he basically handed me this, this uh, test and validation lab that he had created for the uh, U.S. intelligence community. And, and I, I really didn't know anything at all. I mean, the only thing that I knew was, you know, how to communicate in some ways. So uh, I wound up working with all these PhDs and, and people from the university or DOD or other places who were testing things, like, for example, coming off of, um, you know, proprietary network protocols and, and, and implementing TCP IP all over the government. And, and we're trying to figure out, like, what do you do about security, which we're still trying to figure out, by the way. But, but I mean, you know, so we were right, right in the middle of all these, these technological changes that were going on with the advent of the internet and TCP IP and the World Wide Web at the time. And, and uh, I got to cut my teeth on all of that running this technical lab. So it was really fun. That's awesome. I, I remember those debates. I actually yeah, exchanged email with him about the around the CBK. You mentioned ISC squared about authentication versus authorization going back <laughs> well over like almost 25 years now. And at the same time, the government was also trying to get off those the old rainbow series and the, you know, the orange book evaluations That's and right. stuff. And That's right. Well, we were actually doing TPEP evaluations, if you remember that, the trusted product evaluation. Yep. Trusted yeah. product evaluation program. Yeah. And, and, and so what did you study in, in school or in life, um, you know, aside from being in the government? Or where, where did you come from sort of classically? Well, I was a drama major. <laughs> I thought so. And, I, remember, I remember getting an invite yeah. uh, once you had for a show in D.C. Yeah, and then I, I dropped out of school and uh, joined the government. Yeah, a friend of mine was uh, involved. He was a, a Senate staffer. Uh, and uh, kind of got me hooked up with some government people. And I, I wound up dropping out of college and, and working for the government. So uh, I actually didn't go back and finish my degrees till I was in my 40s and well into my uh, cybersecurity career. So, um, 
yeah, I, I guess the I guess the drama stuff. Even though I wasn't on stage, I was a backstage nerd. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I guess hanging around act actresses uh, helped me learn how to, <laughs> you know, how to how to stand up straight and and speak in complete sentences for the most part. And when when did you sort of go? Okay, now it's sort of like you know the 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 story that's not quite true about if you leave a frog in water and raise the temperature. But at some point, you probably were like, okay, now I'm a security guy. Um, did that happen to you at some point, or has it yet to happen? Uh, in a, I don't mean that facetiously. Well, I mean, really. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think after the lab, because I was at the lab for four years, I guess, and and uh, he was running all, all around the world doing security assessments, doing strategy papers, doing just everything you can imagine that one would do in the early days of security because nobody was really doing it. So we were just figuring out what one does. And then, you know, all of a sudden there was an explosion of interest in security. I mean, it started with the banks and the commercial sectors in the commercial sector. And it also started with, um, you know, in those days, the big six, you know. And so all of a sudden, uh, uh, you know, headhunters, as they used to say, you know, we're calling guys like me and saying, mm -hmm. hey, you know, you're a government guy, you know what, how to spell security. Did you know that banks and insurance companies want you to come and do this stuff? And I was like, what? What's that? You know, <laughs> all I knew was the government sector. And, and, I, and they said, yeah, there, there's this new thing called chief information security officer, you know. <laughs> and um, I was like, what's that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, but I mean, nobody knew what it was at the time. I mean, there were like three of them and started with Steve Katz and, uh, and Rhonda McLean, if you remember from I Bank do. of America. Them, yeah. And, you know, I, I think I was like the eighth or ninth one in the U S at the time. And, and I was calling them up going, what do you do? You know, what, what, what does one do in this job? And I remember, uh, the first meeting I had with all of them, we're all sitting around comparing notes on what do you do in this job? You know, um, yeah, cause I was at nationwide insurance and, uh, you know, we were one of the founding members of the FSI SAC. I mean, you know, these are these are like the, the oh, yeah. glory days, you know. And but uh, you know, I had no idea what I was doing, and um, I just knew that we had the auditors that came in, and these were hardcore quote IT audit guys that came out of RACF and ACF two, who were trying to figure out how to audit a network, and we had 150 critical audit findings, and and the board needed somebody to to fix it all. So that's that's. That was the CISO's job in those days was fix all the audit findings, you know? Yeah. And actually, Probably um, still is. I remember the first time I got a chance, it is actually. Uh, and by the way, we still haven't yet figured out a consistent definition of what a CISO or a CSO is and does. Uh, I'm holding the title for the fourth time myself. And I think when I first met you, I think I had a CTO title and you were CSO and it was what, 2011 and we got a chance to work together um, after right. we, we bought NetWitness. Even then, I think right. we, we were crossing each other in the night and doing doing things back and forth. Yeah. Um, but actually it, it's interesting, the Renaissance people that helped to found the industry. And I think probably your drama background helped. And, and I know you're like me, a science fiction fan, but sometimes we have to come up with terms and borrow from other spaces and industries. Um, as a, I think of you as a Renaissance person in many ways. Um, I don't know if you see yourself that way, but uh, what fields have you potentially pulled from? I mean, in those moments where you have to explain an effect or dig into it or, much of what we were doing, we made up as we went and has become part of the canon. Are there fields that you've, you've drawn from of, of interest, music, um, uh, acting, um, science fiction? Yeah. Are there others? I, I do think about the theater field a lot because um, I think one of the most complicated things you can do 
in the theater field is directing a musical. Uh, it's it's it, it's really complicated because you first of all uh, you've got the combination of directing the book part, mm-hmm. which is you know the story and all of this, and then you have to combine it with the choreography and the staging of the musical numbers. Then you have to coordinate the actual presentation of the musical numbers, so the singing and everything. And then, of course, there's all the production elements, you know, the lighting, the sound, the, the stage itself, the, you know, the, the, there's all kinds of elements that have to come together. And then there's all the surrounding uh, stuff that goes on, you know, such as dealing with the, the actors' um, problems and egos. And, and you know, the, the, the other factor that's really important is it all has to come together on a specific day and time. So, mm. you know, there's this concept that you can't peak too early and you can't be too late. And, and it's not like you can change the date. I mean, once you say we're going to open on May 1st at 8 p.m., that's the day. So, so you really have to orchestrate all of these different elements that many of which you don't have, really have control over as much as you have influence over. And, and you can nudge and guide and, and push. Uh, but, but you have to, you know, it's a combination of marketing and, 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 and coaching and, and, and coddling and, and yelling <laughs> and crying and everything else that ultimately gets you to a, a certain finish line at a certain time. And, and I, like, I like that because, I, 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 of course, I like the control for one thing. But I, but I also, or lack of control, maybe, maybe that's what it is. It's interesting. It's interesting you admit that, but I love, I love the self-awareness. Yeah. yeah. But, but I also like the complexity, you know, I, I like looking at the problem and saying, this is an untenable, unachievable goal. And yet I'm going to get there somehow and, and know that there's going to be some failure associated with that because mm-hmm. there will be, I mean, some aspect of it is going to fail in the end, but the ultimate judgment is on, okay, you know, First of all, did you all enjoy the ride getting there? And then, you know, is the ultimate takeaway beneficial to the audience? And I and I think you know, there's a lot of uh, lessons you know for cyber people that come out of that as well. You know, because you know we we spend a lot of time in cyber in the early days trying to build a perfect house when you know we should have been going for one that that ultimately you know would be judged on on a lot of different results that ultimately aren't perfect in in every way. There's so much in what you just said, though, Eddie. I, I, the, the the first that leapt to mind was, you know, we have peacetime to get ready, and but but so much of what we did was academic exercises, and then the feedback loop of having lived through it. I mean, when you and I first got a chance to work together, your I think your first day at RSA was uh, I think three and a half business days before the announcement of the breach. If memory serves, it was a Monday, right? right? Like the fourteenth. Yeah. It was the fourteenth of March. And one day, by the way, if, if we're into musicals, we should do um, a, a RSA Breach, the musical. Uh, although right now, the general counsel from RSA, please, if you're listening, I, I'm joking, Chris, I'm not serious. But, but we, um, but, but honestly, then there's the notion of, I call it Fido, right? And for the, for the young who might be listening, that's F it, drive on, right? That at some, at some point, you're in the moment and you make the best possible decisions you can according to criteria. And so you better have those straight. But um, then there's the whole next generation coming up, looking at, at us and saying, wow, just as we stood on the shoulders of giants, as we mentioned earlier, right? And um, th- they look back and think, well, what's the right way? There must be a canon or a foundation that I should follow. And the answer is sometimes no, you know, like y- you make this, you're building it as you go. And 
And I think, I think what you just said nailed it. You know, in those days, like, for example, one of the key ethical questions that, that, that came to mind was, you know, and this was not true of RSA, of course, but I mean, it was true of others that we knew was, you know, what do we disclose? Do we disclose? Is it, is it, uh, uh, is the onus on us to disclose, you know, and all of this other stuff? I mean, and I think we, you know, uh, you know, we did a good job of making those decisions and, and, and did the right thing. I think now pretty much everyone would agree that disclosure is the thing to do oh, yeah. for the most part. And, and, you know, but you look back on those days when many of us were in, in the, in the times when it wasn't clear that disclosure was the thing to do or that, you know, it was necessarily even the ethical choice or, or it was an ethical requirement to do so as much as now people, most sane people anyway, would look at this and go, well, of course it's the ethical thing to do. And of course it's the right thing to do. And, and here's why. And, uh, you know, it was, it was cool that you and I were, were yeah. there, you know, in, in pioneering times, you know, I, I remember, specifically the meeting where we sat around and said, what do we do? And, and the first thing that was mentioned, I won't say by whom was that there were no contractual reasons to disclose. And then someone said there was no legal yeah. reasons to disclose. And I remember the art attack is what we used to call it when art, when art would express his opinion and he said, we're going to do the right thing. And it became quite clear. Right. And, and I thought about it a lot then and after that there's a first principle and I've stuck to this as a CISO that it is immoral to make a risk-based decision for someone else to withhold information for them to make an informed risk-based decision. And, and I think that's almost a first principle that, that you shouldn't do it for someone else and, and that you should make sure that people are, are able to make those decisions. And we, we stuck to that. Right. And, and in some ways it was right. pioneering. Right. And I wish it hadn't happened, but in the end, looking back, I'm glad it did. Right. And we actually thought yeah, we were going to so. business there. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And, and, you know, the other thing is I was, I was joking, uh, also about the issue of, uh, you know, one of the questions, uh, prior to starting this was, well, you know, what thing about Sam do you, you know, recall it? One of the things that I was thinking about was how many times did you do the anatomy of the oh breach presentation? Goodness. You know, we used to talk about that, but you know, it was funny because like in those days, again, it was also like, well, uh, what happened? Oh, well, we can't tell you. Well, no, we didn't do that. We actually were very open yeah. to talking about what it was because this was a time when the industry was still stuck in the mud of, uh, oh, we have to get money for GRC and we have to focus on compliance. And, you know, we were waving the flag of, hey, there's a lot of really serious bad guys out there. Let, let us tell you what t terrible thing happened to us and our employees. So this doesn't happen to you. Yeah. And the anatomy of the, was the way we told that story. Yeah. And, and actually when, when I did that presentation, it started as a whiteboard um, that wound up stretching to nearly three hours with one customer. And I remember doing this and then it just became the more I gave it, the more I thought to share. And it was the incident captain perspective on it. And, and Eddie, I think I did it three or four times in that first year per day. Um, yeah. and, yeah. uh, and I always, and actually I wrote it down after the first week so that I could always go back and make sure there was none of that cognitive drift that happens as you tell things. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and you're right. God, I, the last time I uh, told this, there were a hundred thousand workstations. Now you're saying there that's now. right. That's right. But that, but that happens by the way. There was that, there was that after nine 11, they had people write yeah. down their experiences and they went back to those same people yeah. 10 years later. And I believe over 60% of them told fundamentally different stories just because human brain's not a good recording machine, right? 
Yeah. Um, and so it was really important we get it right and that it was relevant. And what's scary to me sometimes is that it's still relevant. And anyone who's been through a, a similar experience, um, we had permission, by the way, it was like, you can't talk in the media, but what you can do is share with any practitioner, right? And you can help others improve. And there was always a way to get to that data. And I'd recommend anyone who goes through something like that do the same thing. Um, I agree. Yeah, I mean, do, do, are you are you in your current position? Is it is it mostly internally facing security, or are you helping others facing similar crises today? Yeah, so we kind of do everything. Uh, I mean, you know, we're a combination of uh, sort of bespoke products and, but mostly professional services. So uh, we're doing a lot of IR type of engagement. So we see breaches. Uh, you know, we see uh, uh, compromises in different ways. So, uh, you know, people feel really, really bad when this happens if they've never experienced it. And it's mm. it's a, a lot different after you tell them, well, this is what I've seen and also this is what I've experienced. And uh, and then they, they realize that um, it, it's no longer um, sort of an elite club of people that, that have been uh, beaten up upon in some way, but but actually... Again, it's back to that thing where there just isn't a perfect security solution today or some magic bullet and that, um, sure, there's a lot that all of us could do better. But, um, you know, if, if somebody really wants to get you bad enough, they're going to get you. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, back to you a little bit, if we can. Uh, I, I remember that you were a big fan of the theater I, I, and, I, and I knew you were from New York. I understand you also are into scuba. Is that right? Yes, I've been doing it for a really long time. It uh, seems like forever, actually. But uh, I started uh, when I lived in Panama, uh, and I was diving for a while. And then uh, a few years after that, um, I was hanging around with some uh, you know crazy military guys who s suggested I become an instructor. I think mostly self. Oh, I didn't know you taught it. Yeah, yeah, I became an instructor in '89, and and I mostly uh, did that so they could get more certifications themselves, you know, and. Uh, so then, you know, when I lived in Egypt, I, I basically taught on the weekends for fun. And uh, when I lived in the Philippines, I taught on the weekends for fun. And so, you know, it, I still keep it up, but I've uh, been diving for a long, long time. And, and if for you, is that, a, um, is, is that where you find your zen or is it more active than that? I know you mentioned earlier being in control or trying to regain control. Is it a tranquil glide or is it in fact much more intense and intellectual than that? Or even is it heart pounding? Well, I actually found my Zen originally, uh, I was a martial artist for a really long time. Uh, I, I studied karate since I was 12 and kept it up for, for a long time. And, but when I was studying karate, I learned to meditate, uh, very, very effectively. When I started doing scuba diving, uh, when I lived in Egypt, I did a lot of solo diving at night. And uh, what's nice about solo diving, especially at night, is the, there's no other divers around. Uh, you can go out in the moonlight or just the starlight. And, the, and if you pick the right spot, the water's really calm. And what you can do is you can go down to like 30 or 40 feet underwater and then just perfectly uh, balance uh, your buoyancy. And then you just focus on your breathing. And you can actually see the starlight coming or the moonlight coming through the, you know, from above. And it really is this just incredibly powerful experience where you just hear your breathing and you can feel your heart beating and, uh, you, you know, talk about, you know, becoming one with the ocean and all of that stuff. I know it sounds kind of corny, no, but no, not at all. unless you've experienced 
like it. It's it's incredibly powerful. And also the the blackness of the ocean when you turn off your dive light and you're in that that perfect darkness and and you really don't know what's around you either. You know, it's just kind of fun and scary at the same time. Um, it's it's just really really cool. So. That's amazing. That it, it's it, almost sensory deprivation, but a sense of being part of something much bigger. I've always felt scared swimming in a pool at night because it's always, you know, it's, it's dark under the water. Yeah. It's different. So, uh, that, that, that's amazing. And, and it's meditative in a way. I mean, you discussed that on the, yeah, on the yeah. Way there. Yeah, do, do you do it it's often totally still? Meditative. Uh, so it's hard to find those kinds of opportunities. I mean, I was living in Cairo and I would drive down to, uh, the tip of the Sinai is called the Ras Muhammad. Mm. And uh, there's there's some little places that where you can basically drive your car across the desert and then you're literally uh, right off uh, like a little drop off. So just walk to the end and you jump off the end with your tank and, you know, and your and your stuff and and, and you do it that way. And, and there was one dive we used to call the tower because it was like in a, a curve in, in the uh, drop off and, and it went down to like 110 feet. So even if you fell asleep and hit the bottom, you wouldn't, you know wouldn't die. I mean, so you're not going to like go down to 3000 feet or something. And, uh, but it was just, it was just really powerful. It's it, it, and you know, to your point about, you know, being a sensory, uh, experience, if you've ever seen like the movie altered States, you know, again, the premise of the movie is sort of meditating in a saline solution where, you know, your, your body is sort of like the dead sea, you know, where yeah. you're perfectly balanced and all of that. And, and so you do have that experience where you don't really feel, uh, any weight anywhere on your body, like if you're standing or lying on the ground, you know. And that's an amazing contrast for what it's like in a security department in the moment. Um, do, do, exactly. Do, 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 do you call on that um, when traveling, when in a crunch, when in a meeting that seems interminable, or when giving presentations, or is that just is that a walled off part of your life? If if there's something that I know is going to be super tense, like uh, you know, like a super intense presentation, or uh, you know, something that involving a client that's going to be super intense, I I will draw myself up for a few minutes, or I'll I'll just ask to have to be alone, you know, and I'll go off alone, and 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 there's a place I can find that I you know I've learned to to find you know for the you know, last thirty forty years now. Yeah, I would never, I would never know that about you. Having been in meetings with you, you always, you always brought, you always brought your whole self to them, and were very animated, um, and 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 brought a breadth of experience. So I would never have known that there was that inner calm. Um, yeah, um, we're approaching the end of our time together. Um, I would just ask any advice for the next generation of security people coming along, or a CISO who's out there going. You know what? How, what is the right template for being a security person and an executive and, and driving and doing the right thing? Any anything that you would channel and suggest to whoever that, that mythical listener is? I think there's two things really. Um, one is, um, you know, I, I think a lot of uh, younger people I've seen, unfortunately, have sort of uh, not really experienced or or not maybe put a lot of stock in in the idea of mentorship. Uh, and that word I know has a lot of definitions, but, you know, really uh, latching onto someone and doing whatever it takes to gain the knowledge of somebody that's more senior than they are or that has something to offer. Um, mentorship, you know, like is, I did. mentorship is not about being better or smarter or even being didactic, yeah. right? It's, a, it's right. showing a path and, in fact, is best when there's no, no conflict in terms that's of right. the result, right? That, that you're neutral with the outcome. You care about the person, but there's no vested interest in what they do, right? Yeah, 
like like Lynn, you know, Lynn just wanted to bring people into the industry. Mm. Uh, I spent a lot of time with him and he really was so giving of his knowledge and, and I would have done anything. You know, I would have done anything for him. I would have carried his briefcase. I mean, just to to be around him to learn what he had learned in the early days. And and I did. I, I did everything I could to be around him in the early days and call him for advice when I was stuck. And he was very giving. So I would encourage people that are, are early in their careers to to find those kinds of people that, you know, that that are giving, but also that they find, you know, things they admire. I guess the other thing is related to that, which is the the power of networking and collaboration can't be underestimated. You know, we obviously live in this uh, social, you know, media world and all of this stuff. But um, uh, the thing I value the most are the relationships, uh, you know, like mine with yours, Sam, and, and with you and, and, you know, people that I've met that the, I, I just know, oh, my God, I could call Sam and ask this question, or I could call, you know, Joe and ask this question. And, and the value of that is unmeasurable to me that the power of, of all of us together is so much greater than than anything I could ever have in my head, you know, and, and, and gathering that is, you know, as, as early as you can in your career is so important, you know? Yeah. And, and I, I love, I love both, uh, both points of emphasis and it's so hard, uh, for people who've come up, we, we tend to regress to the things that helped us in the past overcome obstacles that the next set of obstacles are not going to be answered with the things you use for the last set. And that these are, they're social, right? And, and Eddie, I, I echo what you said. I love that I can call you and I love that occasionally you'll, you'll do a podcast with me or you'll answer a question. But um, it is fundamentally a human uh, landscape and a human set of challenges and human responses. And it's the social dimension that will make or break a CISO. Um, by the way, as we, uh, as we wrap up here, there's one thing I ask all my guests and you should feel free to say yes or no or change your mind after. Um, it's called security all in. And I am in fact thinking about, uh, next time we're all at a conference together or in the same location doing like a poker stars type security people poker game and, uh, and, and having, uh, having folks, um, like yourself take part in it. Would you, would you join in such a game and, and play or is it, or is poker not your thing? I would definitely play. I would probably be uh, eliminated early on, but it's certainly fun to hang around and. Uh, we'll do and, low stakes. Uh, you know, just, we'll do low stakes yeah. for that. But yeah, yeah, I would love yeah. it if you did. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. <laughs> All right, Eddie. Thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate it, and it's great to talk to you again. And uh, shukran thanks yachi for the opportunity. Thank you, and uh, we'll talk again soon. <laughs> thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you very much, Sam. Bye-bye.